title of the message is Jesus Once for All Sacrifice. And again, this main idea that Jesus Once for All Sacrifice serves to forgive and perfect us. Now, as we come to Hebrews 10, we're coming to the end of the second major section in the book of Hebrews. Uh, so Hebrews begins, uh, it begins, there's really three primary sections. The first section, uh, chapters one through the first part of four, is Jesus' superior status, that he's better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than Moses. And then starting in chapter four through uh, 1018, the second major section is tied to Jesus' superior service, namely that Jesus is a better high priest, that, that, that he He's a better sacrifice, and we're going to see that reiterated one more time in chapter 10. And then starting next week, as we get into the back half of chapter 10 through the rest of the book, we're going to see our response to these two, these two truths of Jesus. But the author here is making one final appeal to not go back to the law, to not go back to the old way, but to, to, to remain and to abide in the gospel of Jesus. And so with that, let's look at our Bibles here and, and begin with that very idea of not going back, because that's what we see in verses 1 through 4, is an exhortation to not go back to an inferior sacrifice. And so the author here is really summarizing what he's been talking about for the last handful of chapters, reminding his readers that the law is an inferior, is an inferior service, an inferior sacrifice to Jesus. Here's what it says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so what we have here, really a couple things that are happening here in the first four verses. The first is that the author is helping us to see the inferiority of the law. He's like, listen, this is not the true form. It's inferior. And in fact, we see this inferiority play out in a few ways. In fact, three specific ways I want us to see. The first is this in verse 1, that the law is a shadow. But he says this, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Right? It's a shadow, it's not the true form. Now when you think of a shadow, a shadow is not the object of focus. Right? When you put light onto something, it casts a shadow from the object of focus. And it's almost as if the author of Hebrews is saying, no, no, you're missing the point. If you're looking at the shadow, you're missing what the light is shining on. And there's something far greater to behold. So just this past week, I was studying Hebrews 10, and I'm sitting in my office, and it's early in the morning, and, and a hot air balloon happens to come between the sun and my window. And so my office gets significantly darker. And I'm like, what happened? And I look out my window, and what do I see? I see the shadow of a hot air balloon. Now, do I care about the shadow of a hot air balloon? No. What do I want to see? I actually want to see the balloon in the, in the sky. So I go to my window, and I look up, and sure enough, there it is over there. It's far prettier, far more detailed, far, far fuller picture of, of what's actually there. And that's the distinction between the law and Christ. And this is what the author is trying to help us understand. It's just a shadow. It's just a reflection. You don't want to see the shadow. You want to get your eyes on the real thing, on the true form. It's inferior because it's just a shadow. Secondly, the law is inferior because it brings no assurance. Look at the end of verse 1. It can never, he's talking about the law, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, what can it never do? Well, it can never make perfect those who draw near. 
And in verse 2, he's saying, if it would, you wouldn't keep coming back for sacrifices. And then he reiterates this in verse 3. He says, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Right? The, the law brings no assurance. You offer these sacrifices. But, but, but the problem is those sacrifices can't perfect you. They, they, they can't take away sin. They, they, they can't make you right. And so you keep offering them, all the while knowing that they're still not going to make you right. I mean, there's just there's a level of exhaustion in this if you stop to think about it. It's just this ongoing, perpetual act that you have to keep doing, and yet it's never going to fully resolve the issue. Now, how miserable does that sound? Let's just keep doing this, but it's, it's never going to change our state. I mean, that, that, that's more or less the definition of insanity. And yet this right here, loved ones, this, this is what separates the gospel. This is what separates Jesus from all other systems of faith and belief, right? Because in, in, in all other systems of, of belief, there's some element of work that you and I have to accomplish. There's something that you and I have to do. There's something that we have to achieve. And right, so we're constantly living under the burden of doing, doing, doing. Have I done enough? Have I achieved enough? Have I tipped the scales? It, 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 does that merit the favor that I'm looking for? And yet in the gospel, in the gospel, it's already been done for us. See, all other faiths say you have to do more. In the gospel, Jesus says, I've already done it all. It's finished. It's completed. It's done. That's where the insurance comes into play. And so just, just ask yourself, where is it that you are seeking assurance from? Are you seeking assurance in what you do? Or are you seeking assurance with what Christ has already done for you? And here's how you know you're seeking for it in the right place. What is it that you appeal to particularly when you have to defend yourself. See, when you have to defend yourself and you start talking about the work that you've done or, or the ways that you've helped or the knowledge you have or the activity that you're sharing, you're appealing to something outside of what Jesus has done for you. See, here's how you know you have assurance. One, you don't have to defend yourself because Christ has done it for you. And two, you're trusting in what he's done, not in what you are attempting to do. See, the law brings no assurance. And thirdly, the law can't remove sin. This is what it says in verse 4. It is impossible. Right? Not like, well, most of the time it doesn't work, or occasionally you might have to do it twice. No, no. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The blood of animals can't take away your sin, and it can't take away my sin. It doesn't eliminate it. It doesn't remove it. Right? And so the law can't remedy our greatest problem, which is our sin. Right? We are stained by our sin. Now, you, you think about different ways that we're stained. Right? I'm looking at Mark Elkin. Mark's a woodworker. You get stain on you, right? Now, you've probably got some chemicals that can get most of that off. But when you stain your skin, right, that, that, that stain penetrates in there, and, and it stays there. Now, because the, the illustration breaks down because our skin flakes off, and eventually it goes away. My kids, will, they, they swim, and so they'll use Sharpie at swim meets to write what lanes and heats and, and, and events they're in. And so if you see my kids at different times, it looks like they have uh, numbered tattoos on their arms. That's just from swim meets. And eventually it will flake off, but because it, it stains. And if our skin didn't flake off, it'd be there forever. But you see, here, here's the reality. Sin doesn't stain our skin. Sin stains our soul. And it doesn't flake away. You can't flake that away. You can't get rid of it. You, you can't remove that. And so the fundamental problem of our sin, the law can't even remedy this. Right? There, there's, no, there's no spiritual tide commercials 
We're like, hey, this greater uh, cleansing effect that can remove all your sin. No, no, it doesn't work like that. Not in the law. That's what Christ does, but not in the law. And so what the author is saying is he's saying, why would you go back to this? Why would you return to this? Why, why, why would this be a, a suitable substitute? It can't even solve your fundamental problem. Which, loved ones, I think that's a fair question for all of us to wrestle with. Why would we turn to anyone or anything besides Christ? Why would we go chase for, 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 for what only Christ can do in some cheap substitute that we're going to have to keep going back to over and over and over again, and it's never going to solve our fundamental problem? With the inferiority of the law. But there is some help. I want to be... I want to be fair, that there is some help that the law gives us, and that the law is helpful in the ways and the manners by which it points us to Jesus. So there, there is the help of the law pointing us to Jesus. And, and again, the surprise of Jesus, in the end, if you will, begins to come into view, because the law was never intended to be what saves us. The law was never intended to be the end. The law was always meant to direct and point us towards Jesus. And there's a couple ways that we see this in the first four verses. Let me highlight two of them real quick for us. First of all, the law highlights our need of salvation. Right? The law highlights the fact that you and I are sinful. The law highlights that you and I can't remedy and save ourselves. Right? The law is this constant reminder of our sin. Right? When we look at the law and we're like, oh, I, I, I didn't do that, and I didn't do that, and I failed in this, it's reminding us of our sin. We know that we have a problem. And reminders, reminders are, are, are good things. Right? Reminders are, are gifts that God gives to us. In fact, God often built reminders into the lives of His people. You see this in the nation of Israel all the time. The different laws, the different feasts, the different festivals. They were these reminders for the people. And, and they simultaneously did, did two distinct things. Right? So in one sense, when you would get to Passover or, or, or the Feast of Weeks, or, you know, whatever it was, it was a reminder of God's provision, a reminder of God's protection, a reminder of God's care. And you would celebrate how God is seeing you through uh, this, that, or the other thing. But it also kind of had this sobering, uh, somber effect because it highlighted you couldn't rescue yourself. You needed to be saved because of your sin and your failure and your inadequacy. And so simultaneously, it's celebrating what God has done, but being reminded of how we've failed or, or, or we're inadequate or, or we're limited. And if I, you want a current, maybe contemporary example of this in your life and in my life, I'll take a stab at it. Here's what I thought of as I thought of this. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but I think birthdays kind of work like this. And you're like, Birthdays? kind of curmudgeon old man are you that you don't celebrate a birthday? No, 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 because listen, hear me out on this. Yes, every year you have another birthday should be a, a time where you celebrate God's faithfulness and his providence and his care to you. But as you get older and that number gets bigger, you are increasingly reminded, I'm going to die. I'm not going to live forever. Right? And, 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 and the, the closer you get to, to the larger numbers, the more pronounced that is. And so simultaneously, you have both sides of this going on. Now, could, could you imagine? Could you imagine getting a birthday card from someone like, hey, happy birthday, so thankful for God's providence to see you through another year. Also, just a reminder, you're closer to dying. It's kind of morbid and, and sordid, and yet it's also spot on, isn't it? 
And if you're thinking, oh, you know, my spouse has a birthday coming, don't do that. Otherwise, your death might be what happens on that particular birthday. Just don't do that. But it's meant to illustrate and to highlight that this tension. Right? The law highlights our need of salvation. We're not going to live forever, and we're going to die because we're sinners. But then notice also that the, the law highlights the requirement of blood for cleansing, which seems so counterintuitive if you just stop and think about it, yet we're so ingrained in this. And part of that is because the law has helped us to see this. But you can't read the law and not be confronted with the necessity and the requirement of blood. There's no atonement apart from the blood. And so we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus shows up and ultimately what does He do? He bleeds for the people. And He dies for the people. And we speak often about how the Old Testament will give us context and categories and frameworks that serve to help us understand Jesus when He finally shows up. And so the, the Old Testament is really kind of laying a foundation, if you will, to help us understand Jesus. And the necessity and just the overwhelming volume of blood is a part of that. It helps us to understand Jesus' death properly. And so the law is inferior. That's, that's what he's saying. And yet what we're going to see uh, from verses 5 through 18 is the contrast of this, that Jesus provides a saving sacrifice, that Jesus is going to remove sin. Jesus is going to bring assurance. Jesus is not a shadow, but the true form of God's plan. So he's saying one last time, don't go back. Okay, so where are we going? Well, we're going to go to Jesus and to his better promises. In fact, Really, you could, you could capture all of 5 through 18 under a singular point, uh, but I've delineated three distinct points so that we see each of them um, in their own light, although all three of these is really serving uh, to show us why Jesus is better, um, the superior once and for all sacrifice. So let's, let's, with these next three items, and we'll spend the rest of our time looking at this, I'll look at verses 5 through 10. And here's what we see in this section with respect to Jesus, that we embrace God's better promises in Jesus. That we embrace God's better promises in Jesus. Now, we've got to take a quick detour here because I want you to see something in the text. Look at verse 5. It says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Okay, your turn to participate, church. Who does the author of Hebrews think is speaking in verses 5 through 7? Who does He tell us is speaking? Christ. Okay, do you know what He quotes here in verses 5 through 7? It's Psalm 40. Anybody know who wrote Psalm 40? David. That's usually a pretty good guess, right? You put that one out there, kind of 50-50, right? David. Yeah, and David did. You're right. If you guessed, hey, you took the chance, you get the credit. David wrote Psalm 40. So then the question is, wait, 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 wait. How can Christ say this if David wrote this? And what we have here is a beautiful example of how biblical inspiration plays out. It is spoken inspired. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, God breathed. Right? The scriptures are inspired by God. They are penned by human authors. And so what you see is, is really this partnership that is existing between God and the biblical authors. The word is spoken, inspired, breathed out by God. It's penned by the human authors. Beloved ones, this is why God's word is binding and authoritative over our lives. Because it's ultimately from God. Right? This isn't from Paul or Peter. Well, we don't totally know who wrote Hebrews, right? But if we were in some other book of the Bible, we knew who wrote it. Ultimately, it's from God. It's just penned by that human author. And you're going to see it again in verse 15 with respect to the Holy Spirit in Jeremiah 31. So two times in this chapter, we see these great examples of inspiration. 
But let's get back to the content here. We embrace God's better promises in Jesus. Three promises I want us to see uh, here in verses 5 through 10. The first is this. Look at verse 5 and 6. It said, Jesus promises himself as a sacrifice. So he says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Now, the, the, the context has to do with sacrifice. And, and then you, you see this mention of this body that's being prepared. And, and essentially what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's saying that body is the body of Jesus. The, 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 the way he's seeing it is, no, this is the body of Jesus that will be used to atone for our sin. And so in, in essence, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God promised to send his son, Jesus, to offer himself on our behalf in Psalm 40. Right? So this psalm that's penned a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up on the earth is, is pointing us to Jesus coming. It's foreshadowing the incarnation. Right? It's this breadcrumb, if you will, that's, that's going to eventually lead us to Jesus. And, and then more specifically, when you think about how this, what, what, what do we do with this? Look, look, I want you to look at verse 6 for a moment. He says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Guys, guys like, I don't want your offerings. I, I don't want the sacrifices. I, I have no pleasure in that. Hear me when I say this. God is more concerned with your allegiance and your affection than He is with your activity. Did you hear that? God is more concerned with your allegiance and your affection than He is with your activity. God's like, I don't want your offerings. Jesus said this in Matthew 9. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Remember what Samuel had to tell Saul? In 1 Samuel 15, hey, the, does, does the Lord have His great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Right, God's more concerned with our allegiance and our affection than He is with, with our offerings and our sacrifices. And so what you have to ask yourself as we think about what, what Christ is doing here, have I prioritized activity above allegiance and affection for God? Jesus doesn't want your activity. He wants your allegiance and your affection. Now, your allegiance and your affection will drive proper activity. But we get in trouble when, when we invert the order here. And Jesus is offering Himself as the sacrifice which frees us not to try to perform some ritual duty, but to live in a manner and a way where we are pursuing Christ and our affection and our allegiance is rooted in Him. Jesus promises Himself as a sacrifice. Secondly, look at this second promise we see in verse 7. He says, Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written, me, written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus promises obedience in our place. That's the second promise. Jesus promises obedience in our place. Jesus says, I'm going to be obedient to your plan, God. I'm going to be obedient to the will of God. I've come to do what it is that you want me to do. And Jesus is always perfectly obedient to God's plan. One of the best examples of this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before Jesus dies. You remember what he prayed? What did he pray? Not my will be done, but your will be done. Right? Take, can, you take this, can you take this cup? He's like, yeah, I know, that. I know the answer is no. Okay, not my will be done, but your will be done. So Jesus, even though it's going to cost him immensely, is always, always obedient to God's command. How about us? Are we always obedient to God's command? Nope. In fact, it's in another garden that we see this illustrated so poignantly, isn't it? 
all the way back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve forsake the first commands of God. And humanity has been plagued with that decision ever since. Right? They, they, they did not obey perfectly. Uh, they, 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 there, were, there were issues in their obedience. And in fact, th- th- this is the story of, of the Bible. That the people of God fail to obey the commands of God. Abraham, yeah, Abraham had faith. Abraham also took matters into his own, own hands and he did not perfectly obey. Nation of Israel. I mean, nation of Israel is just a litany of failed obedience, isn't it? Right? But they're liberated from, from, from the slavery of Egypt and they get out into the wilderness and what do they do? They don't obey perfectly, that's for sure. Right? And, and the people of God have always been called to be obedient, but they've never been able to do it. They've never been able to do it. In fact, so convinced of our inability. Let me, let me read to you. I want to read. This is some of the last words that Moses speaks to the nation of Israel. This is after, um, you know, they're about to go into the promised land. Joshua's been commissioned. You're thinking, man, this is, this is a pretty great moment for Israel. And yet Moses just calls it for what it is. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 31. He says, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you, and the days to come evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. How's that for, hey guys, some final words of encouragement? I mean, he's just laying it on the line for them. He's like, listen, if I know one thing, it's that you're going to fail miserably. You won't be obedient. How many times? How many times does Israel say, we're going to be obedient, and then they're not obedient? And loved one, how many times have you said, God, I'm going to be obedient, and you fail to be obedient? Right? Too many to count. Just too many to count. And yet this is one of the most beautiful elements of the gospel right here. Listen, that our right standing before God is not dependent upon our ability to be obedient. Because if it was dependent upon our ability to be obedient, we would all be utterly lost. And so praise God, that's not how it works. Praise God that our ability is not what is going to put us in a right standing, but Jesus' ability to be obedient in our place is what puts you and I in a right standing before God. And so unlike Israel and unlike you and I, Jesus is always obedient and he always accomplishes the will of the Father for our benefit. That's what he's saying. I have come to do your will. And we've got to remember this. Church, you've got, you got to remember this. You've got, you got to remember this when you're successful, and maybe more importantly, you've got to remember this when you fail. In fact, almost every time when I'm having to discipline Ellie, our four-year-old, which only happens about 10,000 times a day, but when I have to discipline Ellie, there's always two questions I ask her. I ask her, Ellie, were you obedient? To which usually she says no. Sometimes she wants to fight, but usually like no. And then I said, who has always been obedient for us? And she'll say, Jesus. Because I, I want my kiddo to know right out of the gate, you're, you're going to fail. That's not the issue. It's not about you being perfect. It's the fact that Christ has been perfect in your place. Jesus promises obedience in our place. Praise God for that. And then here's the third thing we see. Look at verse 8 through 10. is that Jesus promises propitiation for our sin. 
Jesus promises propitiation for our sin. Now, I'll get to that 10-cent term here in a moment, uh, but let's look at the text. Verse 8 says this, When He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then He added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so, so the author is almost giving a commentary here on the Psalm 40 quote, and he's really driving two points. He's saying, one, Jesus' obedience does away with the need for the old covenant, and secondly, that Jesus' obedience serves to, to sanctify and to purify us once and for all. And, and that sanctifying work has massive implications for us. Now, typically, when we think of sanctification, we tend to think of sanctification as progressive sanctification, the progressive work of God, where you and I are conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, right? Where we have a victory over sin, uh, we're growing in righteousness, we're repenting of our sin, things of that nature. Um, But but that's an ongoing action. Here's the problem, is in verse 10, that word sanctified, uh, that's a completed action. It's finished. It's not this ongoing thing, like it's finished and it's done. And so you're like, okay, well, what, what, what is he referring to here then? I don't think verse 10 is a reference to progressive sanctification. I think it's a reference to what we would call positional sanctification. That we are sanctified, we are purified positionally. Our standing before God is fixed because of what Christ has done. That we're once for all cleansed from sin by the atoning death of Jesus. And so then the question is, well, how does that work? Since I know what's going to happen later today, and I'm going to sin in some way, shape, or form. Not because I want to, but I just know myself. Okay, so here's, here's where we're going to come to this term, propitiation. Let me define it, and then let me try to illustrate what's going on within it. Here's a definition for propitiation. This actually comes from Wayne Grudem, a very prominent theologian, which is far better than anything I could come up, so we're just going to use his. Here's how he defines propitiation. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Let me read it again. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Let me try to illustrate this. I want you to imagine that the pulpit is neutral. Okay? The pulpit's neutral. Anything over here is negative. It's debt. All right? This is not where we want to be. We're in a negative over here. If we can make our way over here, this is positive and this is credit. Got it? So here's how the... Here's, well, first of all, where are you and I born? We're born over here. Okay? Like we, we were born with a sin nature. So we're already in trouble. Here's all that the law can do. The law, through the blood of bulls and goats, can move you from here to here. Now, what's the problem? What are you and I going to do? Tell me, what are we going to do? We're going to sin. And so we're back over here. Offer another sacrifice, we're going to sin again. Right? And back and forth we go. We just vacillate between these two positions. The best that the law can do is to move you and I to a place of neutrality, which even that isn't totally true because of our sin nature. It's just dealing with actual sin acts. So we're still technically over here. Here's how the the sacrifice of Jesus and this propitiation comes into play. Jesus, when He dies in your place and my place, does two things. One, He atones for our sin. So He, not only our sin, but even our sin nature. So He moves us from this place of, 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 of net or death 
set uh, under the wrath of God to a place of neutrality. But he doesn't stop there because Jesus gives us something too. He imputes or grants his righteousness to us, which now moves us over here into the favorable or credit position. And so both of these things come from Christ. So what you and I deserve is to be crushed by God's wrath because of our sin. Jesus dies in our place, and now we're credited, we're favorable, we are propitious, hence that word, favored by God. That's the better promise. The law can't can't do that. By the way, neither can Muhammad or Joseph Smith or anyone else. And neither can you. There's only one person that can take you from here and move you over here, and his name is Jesus. And so listen to me, listen to me. When God looks at you right now, tell me, where are you? You're right here. Isn't that stunning? See, because here's what I know. I know every single one of you did something stupid this morning. I know that. And I did plenty of dumb, stupid, sinful things up to this point this morning. And so you're like, well, how am I here? This is the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. See, it's not dependent upon our behavior. It's dependent upon Christ's sacrifice. Praise God for this. See, right now when God looks at you and I, He sees us favorably because of the atoning work of Jesus and the imputed righteousness that comes to us through Jesus. Ask yourself this. Am I resting in the finished work of Jesus? Or is there any area in my life where I'm trying to strive in my own power? Secondly, where am I failing to believe that I'm accepted in Jesus by His work and that's enough? We embrace God's better promises in Jesus and they are infinitely better than what the law can provide. Here's the second aspect that we see of Jesus. Look at verse 11 through 14. And it's that we embrace God's better sacrifice in Jesus. Now, now the, the, the last thing we were looking at with propitiation kind of lines up some of the sacrifice. But the author sees that and he's like, oh, I want to lean into this a little bit more. And so he's going to help us see the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. And he's going to do it in two ways. He's going to contrast the law with Jesus. And so look at verse 11. What we see in verse 11 is we see the futility of the law. And there is, there's an intentional repetition, I believe, by the author to help drive home just how utterly futile the law is. Here's what he says. And every priest stands. Now that word stands doesn't mean a whole lot to us now. It's going to mean a lot when we get to Jesus here in verse 12 in just a moment. But suffice to say that there's a restlessness in this. There's no breaks. There's no vacations. It's just continuing. Okay, well, how, how long do you have to stand? Oh, just every day. Right? Daily. It's going on every single day. And what are you doing every day? You're offering, offering repeatedly. Right? Over and over and over again. Well, what is it that you're offering? The same sacrifices. Right? Same blood of bulls. Same blood of goats. And then here's the kicker. Look at the end of verse 11. Which can never take away sins. It doesn't even accomplish the task. He's like, here's what you have in the law. This, this exhausting, ongoing, frenetic sense of constantly working. Oh, and by the way, it's never going to resolve your issue. This is like the New Testament version of Ecclesiastes. Right? Meaningless, meaningless. All of, I mean, it feels meaningless. And it's exhausting. And it's, and it's never-ending. I was thinking about this. I was trying to think, what, what in our lives could we understand that would be in this same sense. And all I could think of 
So I was thinking about when our older four were all young. We had four kids within four years. And cleaning our house in the evening felt like an utterly futile exercise. Because I had four tornadoes that masqueraded as children who every morning would come down and it was their personal uh, responsibility to utterly destroy whatever it is that Becky or I put away. And so every day, right, he just in the evening, and I can remember times picking up toys and I'd be like, why am I doing this? In 12 hours, I'm not going to be able to see the carpet anyway. Like, what's the point? Now, see, here's the difference, right? You do that because toddlers will grow up into teenagers that make teenage messes and then eventually into adults that make adult messes, which is all of us, okay? But they grow up and they grow out of it. Who grows out of the law? Nobody. It's this endless, futile sense. And it's contrasted with the finality that we see in Jesus. Look at verse 12. And so notice how he'll use specifically words that stand in opposition or contrast to what he said in verse 11. But when Christ had offered for all time. He's like, oh, y'all have to do this every day. Jesus did it for all time. Well, how many times did he do it? Up and up, just a single sacrifice for sins. What did he do? Sat down at the right hand of God. Do you know why he sat down? Because it's done. Do you know why the priests never sit down? Because it's never done. And then it's almost like the author just kind of piles on in verse 13 waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He's like, oh yeah, he's just kicking back, and there's a time where he's going to gather all his enemies, and they're just going to be a footstool for him. There's like not even a context for that in the law. But here it is, look at verse 14. The culmination of this, for by a single offering, he is perfected for all time. That is good news, you should underline that in your Bible. For by a single offering is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's like, oh, all your sacrifices that couldn't take away your sin, Jesus has taken away all of our sin. The point is that Jesus' sacrifice is superior. This is what the author of Hebrews has been arguing for, for chapters now. That with Jesus, it's one and done. It's in eternally enduring. It accomplishes far more. It removes sin from us. It perfects us. Now, now, think about this for a minute. I want you to consider the audience. Remember, these are people that are being heavily pressured and persuaded to abandon the gospel and return to Judaism. Did you pick verse 11 over verse 12 through 14? No way, right? You're like, no, that, that's a fool's errand. I, I would never do that. But see, picking, picking Jesus was going to come at a great cost. There's going to be a social pressure. That, that, that there's going to be a religious pressure. There's, there's going to be all kinds of pressures that are going to come with this. In the same way that, loved ones, there's going to be similar pressures for you and I today. That this, this better sacrifice, this greater sacrifice, brings with it a number of costs. And we have to wrestle through the question. Is it worth the cost? Is, is discipleship worth the cost? Is following Jesus worth the cost? Is giving our life to Him and living for Him worth the cost? Is it worth it? Unequivocally, yes. Unequivocally, yes, because the finality of Jesus' sacrifice produces the highest hope, the greatest salvation, the holiest of people, and the brightest of futures. And I was thinking this week, man, how do you, how do you, how do you apply this? How do you help people to grasp this? Like, what, what, what do I say that you're like, oh, I get it, I see it, I, I, I can wrap my arms around it, and I, I just got to tell you, I, I just struggled, struggled, struggled with this. 
Because what I, what I wanted us to be able to do was be able to see this in its totality. And I think John the Baptist does it best. So I'm just going to steal from him. You remember him in John 1? Sees Jesus and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. But then it's what actually happens a few verses later that I think helps to cement this. Because I think it's the next day, John is standing there and he's with a few of his disciples. And the text says that Jesus goes walking by and you can almost see John kind of smacking them on the shoulder. Hey, hey, hey! It's the Lamb of God. Church, what I want you to be able to do with Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 is I just want you to be able to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want you to be able to see the one who has freed us and liberated us from, from the wrath that we deserved in our sin. That we would fix our eyes and fix our hearts and fix our hopes on him and his sacrifice for him. Faith Church, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We embrace God's better sacrifice in Jesus. Here's the final thing. Look at verse 15 through 18. And it's that we embrace God's better forgiveness through Jesus. We embrace God's better forgiveness through Jesus. So he continues, he says, And the Holy Spirit, verse 15, also bears witness to us. For after saying, and now he's attributing Jeremiah 31 to the Holy Spirit. He says, This is the covenant that I'll make with them. After those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And here's where I want to focus our last few moments is on verse 18. Here's what he says. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. See, the author is re-emphasizing re once again that God no longer remembers our sin. That it's been erased, it's been eradicated, it's been expunged, it's, it's gone. And so just note a few things about this here quickly. First of all, that our sin is forgiven. I think sometimes we, 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 we forget the, the depth of that. It's not that our sin is tolerated. It's not that our, our, our sin is kind of brushed aside. It's not that God kind of goes full ostrich, put his head in the sand and pretend like it's not there. It's forgiven. He's paid the debt. It's covered. Which means it's gone. We saw early in Hebrews that God literally remembers it no more. You've got to wrap your heads around this. Our sin is forgiven. Secondly, God's offering is comprehensive. Right, he says there's no longer any offering for sin. He's like, yeah, there, there, there's no additional need. There's no additional offering. So, so think of it like this. Your past sin and your present sin, and your future sin, is all in view in this statement. There's never a moment where God's like, oh man, I can't believe he just did that. Now i got to go back and clean up that mess. No, no, there's, there's, there's none of that. Because God's offering is comprehensive. And here's the final thing, that the outcome is determined. See, the outcome is determined. And you and I, we, we can have confidence in how things are going to turn out because we already know. We already know that, that, that God is going to be gracious through Christ. We already know that our sins are going to be forgiven. We already know what, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And I say that because knowing how things turn out changes how we feel about things in the moment. So when Becky and I were living in Austria, um, th this was back before you could stream sporting events and things live. That was long before that. Uh, and, and so we were living there. But when there were major sporting events, uh, there was a group of us guys that, that wanted to be able to watch those. 
And so different people in the States would record, like right now, they'd record the World Series or they'd record the Super Bowl or, or March Madness or things like that. And then they would, they would send them to us so that we could watch them. So oftentimes we were watching those games two, three, four days uh, after the game had actually been played. We'd just avoid the internet uh, and, and wouldn't watch it. But in 2005, um, it, it, during the Final Four, so it was North Carolina playing Illinois uh, in the Final Four. And I knew the outcome of the game because a student had accidentally told me uh, who won the game. But I still wanted to watch the game anyway. And so I can still, to this day, distinctly remember sitting there in, in Matt Klein and John Householder's apartment, this tiny little apartment in Vienna, and there's probably 15 to 20 guys kind of huddled around this TV. And what was interesting is most of the guys watching that game either came from Illinois or North Carolina. So they had a real vested interest in what was going on in the game. And I remember just sitting there kind of, kind of leaned back going, doesn't matter. Like, I know you're all excited that they're making a run. You guys are going to lose. Or I know you're all worried because, maybe because you're looking bad. You're going to win. Now, I didn't say that because I wanted to live and see the next day, right? But, but I knew what was going to happen. So it radically changed how I viewed what was unfolding in front of me. Church, that's how you and I should be looking at life. The outcome's already determined. It's already determined. The, the, the forgiveness has already been issued. Uh, Jesus has already been victorious over sin and death. So we should be living as people who truly believe and understand that the outcome is determined. And so how would that change how you and I live? Oh, it would change radically. It changes how we live our life. It changes how we look at our family. It changes how we view society. You don't have to fear the social chaos. Jesus is going to be victorious. You, 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 don't, you don't have to fret over your current circumstance. Jesus is going to be victorious. You, you don't have to worry about the struggles uh, that, that you're facing. Jesus is going to win. Game's already been played. We're just, we're, it's this tape delay after the fact. It's already been determined. Let's live that way. Jesus, once for all sacrifice, serves to forgive and perfect us. So, loved one, live as one who is forgiven because you are in Jesus. Live as one who's being perfected because you are in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, God, that you would enable us to, to truly believe and to know and understand the fullness of what you've done, what you've accomplished. God, that it's finished. Father, forgive us for ways that we will chase and pursue cheap substitutes ways that we'll go back to some inferior sacrifice or an inferior service. Father, we thank You for the better hope, the better promises, the better sacrifices, the better forgiveness that we have in You. Father, would You help us to live in the fullness of that? Would You see what You're accomplishing within us? God, would You give us eyes to thank You, knowing that you're going to be victorious, even if what we see right now just looks an awful lot like defeat. We thank you, God, that you are victorious over sin, that you were sacrificed for our sin so that we could be reconciled and restored to God. God, we thank you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.